0: I deprived myself of internet in my apartment for 4 years so that every night when I came home the only thing that I could do in my studio apartment was write and work on my book. That's how I wrote my first book. I don't know. It's it's a weird balance because I can also I can think about a lot of moments in time where like I have let people down or I have made decisions where I distanced myself from from people or other friends or whatever because what I was working on meant more to me.
1: Hello and welcome to The Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where Lewis and I profile high performers. Today, we have Nicholas Cole on the show.
2: Nicholas Cole has a... Pretty wild story that's going to take us a minute or two to tell, but it's worth listening. It's kind of some necessary context for a lot of the questions we ask throughout the conversation. So, Nicholas Cole is best known as an extremely popular online writer, having amassed over 100 million views across his different writing for websites like Inc., Forbes, Medium, Quora. But before all that, he actually had mastered a couple of different domains before he really mastered the online writing world. When he was a teenager in high school, he became one of the top ranked World of Warcraft players in the entire country, perhaps even the entire world. After that, He stopped playing video games and became an obsessive bodybuilder, putting on something like 60 to 80 pounds of muscle within three to four years and just became an absolute beast. After that, or kind of around the same time, actually, he was working at an advertising and copywriting agency while starting to build his online following as a writer. His eventual success in doing that and getting so many views on the internet led to executives at different startups reaching out to him, asking for help building their online brands, which led him to quit his job and start a ghost rating agency. Within 18 months, that agency was a multi-million dollar business with close to 20 employees, and he was kind of crushing it. But in this interview, we talk about how he purposely downsized that agency because he became an entrepreneur instead of a writer, which was his ultimate goal. This conversation dives into that decision, as well as some of the other decisions he's made along that different journey, how he's managed to stay obsessed with only one thing at a time how to become elite at anything on the kind of repeatable formula he's developed for that as well as a lot of specific writing advice and discussions of the different business models for writing online and offline.
1: Today Nick is building Ship 30 for 30 with Dickie Bush, a writing challenge online where you post 30 atomic essays in 30 days. Lewis completed that challenge in January and I'm hoping to do it in March. Uh, really big fans of these guys and what they're building.
2: Thank you for mentioning that. I forgot to bring that one up, but I hope you all enjoy the conversation. Uh, Sorry for the longer intro than usual. Just kind of needed some context today and I'm going to switch over to the audio now. Oh, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. We're excited to have this conversation. Thanks for having me, man. Ready to jam. Absolutely. So we kind of both Kyle and I really... Got deep into your life story and you've told it on a a lot of great podcasts, Craig Clement show, Danny Miranda, who we've had on here and we listened to that episode. So we told your story in the introduction. And I just want to ask you right off the bat, one question that's kind of been burning on my notepad is you've been in a lot of the different business models of writing. So you've captured just the straight attention advertising model when you're writing on Inc., you do executive ghostwriting. But at the end of your book, you talk about how copywriting is the most lucrative form of writing, uh, because you're often tied directly to the financial outcome. So my question to you is very specific, and we'll hopefully get more esoteric throughout the conversation. But why didn't you after working at an advertising agency, why didn't you start out doing freelance copywriting as your way to kind of get independence as a writer?
0: That is a terrific question, because I've been asking myself the same exact thing. It's it's interesting, You you kind of on the path of writing, there's there's two big there's a fork in the road that presents itself at a certain point. And you can either look at writing as a product or you can look at writing as a service. And the benefit of treating writing as a service is that it's easier to make money faster, right? Because I am charging for my skill. So I can say, you know, you want an article or you or I'm ghostwriting an article or a book or, uh, a PDF or a white paper or whatever, and then depending on what I negotiate and my expertise and all the things that I've done, I can charge you know anywhere from a couple hundred bucks to a couple thousand bucks to tens of thousands of dollars for that asset. That's really great for writers in the beginning because it allows them to make more money faster. The problem with that is because it's a service, you have a lower ceiling as to what you can ultimately earn because you can only charge so much per hour or per asset at the end of the day. Right. Like even the best ghostwriters in the world, even if they're ghostwriting books for politicians or whatever, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to charge you a quarter million or half a million or even a million bucks to write the book. But that pales in comparison to what the publisher is earning because the publisher on that's probably earning anywhere from 10 to 100 plus million. So the ceiling is very low, but it's easier to monetize faster. Product is harder to monetize faster but the ceiling is way higher. So that's where you have a lot of those stories of entrepreneurs or writers who you know, it's like, I wrote a book, no one read it, no one bought it. Wrote a book, no one read it, no one bought it. But then you do that enough times, the book is non-human. It is not a hour of human capital, right? It, It can be scaled infinitely. So after enough books or after enough products, something hits a tipping point and then all of a sudden, no one's reading your book to, I just sold a million copies. And that that is a disproportionate reward. And for me and just my own path, I fell into the world of ghostwriting. And that is me charging per hour. That's charging for my expertise as a service. And it was easier to monetize sooner. You know, That's what allowed me to, I mean, it kind of happened at the same time. So it wasn't exactly what allowed me to quit my job. But when I quit my job working in advertising, And I started ghostwriting. That was a very easy path to monetize. And so when you're making money doing that, I wasn't really thinking like, oh, I'm going to go do the product, which I learned about later.
1: Is your process different from product to service?
0: So that I can answer more specifically, like, how do you mean?
1: Like your book versus writing or copywriting something for a client? Like, is your process for writing that piece a lot different from product to service service being copywriting and product being your books. To be honest, not really.
0: I think in the beginning I would have said yes, but I only would have said yes because I wasn't as conscious about why I was doing the things that I was doing. Whereas now I've I've really built such a toolbox for myself of frameworks that work, formats that work, styles that work that whether I'm ghostwriting for someone as a service or I'm creating a product for myself, I I'm still both using things that work, that I know work. The only difference that I would say is with my own creations, I tend to take more risks because I, A, I don't have to answer to anyone and I, that's my freedom and I can do that. But I also want to keep pushing the boundary of my own skill. Whereas with a the client, they're essentially buying what's proven, what works. So I'm a little less likely to take creative
2: risks on that end. I think that makes a lot of sense in your book, which I really enjoyed reading privately as I identified in the, before we started recording, I'm very interested in the exact type of problem it it seeks to solve, but it gives formula after formula of like coming up with headlines, how to come up with content based on headlines and then like being an idea generation machine. So a lot of those tools now that you have them and you've laid them out so clearly it makes sense that you'd use them.
0: To go back to like the example that you had said and copywriting, most people don't know this. So I think it's worth explaining a bit. My friend, Craig Clemens, who's an incredible, arguably one of the best copywriters alive, what he did is he used his craft in order to build a company that sold products, non-human products, right? He's not selling hours of time. He's selling supplements and things like that. So he's using his craft in order to leverage something else. And writers don't think about their craft that way. A lot of them just think, I have to write words and I have to be paid for the words that were written. Mm. And that is true sometimes, you know, like that's true for a paid newsletter or books or whatever, but there are a lot of other ways to use writing. Like I, no one really introduced me to the concept of if you're a really great writer and you understand the power of languaging and shaping the way that people think through words, you can help startups with their messaging and you can negotiate equity percentages on that you know or you can go into a big company with an entire content marketing department and go you're going to pay me top dollar in order to elevate the performance of this 500 person department you know and and writers just aren't introduced to those different ways of monetizing their craft so craig and he started the company with his brothers you know they took a product and he said i'm going to leverage my unique ability to capture and keep people's attention. And I'm going to be paid every time we sell products and products are non-human. So as good as Craig is at getting people to buy into and believe the power of the products that they create, he is disproportionately, or depending on how you look at it, appropriately rewarded as a result.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of writers don't properly think of themselves in business terms. This was a really early episode we did with one of my friend's dads, but he's like a really interesting entrepreneur based out of Tampa. And he uses the term business athlete where you know people in business, if they apply the same level of rigor and like training discipline as to like a sport, like an athlete does for their sports, they come up with practice to get better at the skills they know are important for that sport. And they schedule time to practice those skills. They become better at it and writers don't do that. But that seems to be something that you kind of had naturally applying that kind of obsession mindset of an athlete to any craft that you did, whether that was gaming or whether that was writing, whether that, I guess bodybuilding is a sport as well. Right. Was that something kind of innate or something that was taught to kind of have that really athlete mindset, but towards anything?
0: Well, for context, I, I grew up playing hockey. So I grew up as an athlete. My dream was playing the NHL. I fractured my spine when I was in uh, high school. So that, that didn't happen. But I think I wanna say that it's innate But at the same time, as I've gotten older, like I look at people, like my parents, who you know, my dad's a doctor and my mom's a a voice teacher, a singer, and they both treat their craft with an extreme level of commitment and discipline. And and I think just by nature of growing up in a household like that, you know, I I watched my dad wake up every morning and work out at five thirty a.m. before running out the door to work at seven a.m. You know, and I watched them do that for 30 years. Like I think some part as a kid, you watch that and internalize that, whether whether you're conscious of it or not. So yeah, and and then gaming after after gaming as a teenager, that's what really started making it conscious for me was like, Oh, you can pick something. I had never played an online video game before, before that game. And so playing World of Warcraft and mastering it made me realize, oh, you can pick pretty much anything you want, barring, you know. Oh, you need to be six two or whatever to play in the NBA. Probably more like six six. And you just you go through the the steps and you master the game, and and you can do that with anything. And then after I repeated that with bodybuilding, and then I repeated it with writing and Quora and building a company. Like I've repeated that same thing multiple times now. Where it's I know whatever I pick now, it's not an if, it's just a when. I just have to go through the process, and and it's the same process every time you know start at level zero level one and then there's right. a there's a bunch of milestones that take you to the top
1: i i sort of had the same question as lewis just asked you but i, I want to hear what your difference and answer is and that is what elements are necessary for obsession so you've been obsessed with five different things are there any threads or common themes between where you were at when you met these different things like gaming and and bodybuilding that needed to be there in order for you to to get obsessed with them
0: for one, it has to be intrinsically interesting to you. Like the argument, I mean, the amount of people that told me as a teenager, spending that many hours at your computer playing video games is a waste of time. I mean, everyone told me that. But my what I always said back to them was, yeah, but I'm going to go a lot farther with something that I'm intrinsically interested in rather than me pretending to care about algebra or french class like i just didn't care. and so my thinking was always if i know that i'm going to go farther with something that i'm intrinsically interested in then it's in my best interest to do that because that's where i'm going to see the majority of the results. the same thing was i studied uh fiction writing in college. everybody was like, dude, you're basically just throwing away a college degree. like no like in, that's not the most lucrative degree, right? but at the same time that's what i was intrinsically curious about. And I knew that I would go farther with that than if I tried to study something that I really didn't care about. And so it, it doesn't make sense in the beginning, like all the other people, like, you know, you said you're studying finance. You're like, that's not really what I want to do. A gazillion kids that I went to high school with all were like, I'm studying finance and that's going to get me a good job. And all of them were making three times what i was making right out of college and all of them had nice apartments right out of college and all of them you know like xyz but four years later i lapped them all by a factor of 10. so it's like it depends on if you're trying to monetize and you're trying to get somewhere really quickly then yeah like do the thing that's like oh here's the guaranteed result but if you're following your intrinsic curiosity and you know that that's going to take you farther than something else. It's just a matter of time. Like if you keep on that path, you're going to have a higher ceiling than other people that settled for whatever.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, the problem for, for Lewis and I is that we're intrinsically interested in a lot of different things and that like, there's just a lot of different options as to what we could, you know, like Lewis specifically, there's a lot of shiny objects can take an idea and take it out 10 years and be like, yeah, that's a reasonable thing that I could do and it's it's just difficult to pick. So do you have any advice for for that? Pick what is grabbing
0: you most right now and trust that. Like you're okay, between the ages of we'll call it 17 for me and 27, okay, a decade, 10 years. At 17, my entire world was gaming. That is all I did. By the time I was 20, all I did was bodybuild. By the time I was 24, I was completely enamored with the advertising industry and I worked at an ad agency. And that's like all I, I just wanted to be a creative director and that's all I wanted to do. By the time I was 25, number one writer on Quora. And then 27, I had started a multi million dollar ghostwriting agency. And each one of those chapters has like nothing to do with each of the other ones like they're all completely separate like gaming and bodybuilding and entrepreneurship and like no one would draw the parallel between the two but for me I don't see seven different interests I see things that I was intrinsically curious about and the skills the fundamental skills of discipline and hard work and good habits and finding mentors and being surrounded by people those those were true for every single one of them all I did was just change the game so I I remember, I know that feeling that you're talking about and it, it feels like you need to do everything, or it feels like if you pick one thing, you can never change it. And what I'm trying to point out is like in one decade, 10 years, I lived like five different lives. You know, you can always pivot. You can always do just trust whatever's grabbing you right now.
2: I, I really like that answer. And I think that when you look back with the framing of a decade, that perspective helps you realize that, you know, nothing's permanent, you change completely. And in in each of the situations, you're completely fine. So that was really helpful for us. Thank you. Yeah. So another question I want to ask is mildly related to that last point. But it's another question kind of based on one of the articles you'd written that I'd read uh, about the agency that you had built. My question is, you've kind of downsized this agency pretty dramatically, kind of on purpose. Can you walk us through why you did that? And that's kind of like an interesting situation And like kind of, I feel like you're, past couple of years have been a conflict between like entrepreneurship and writing. Can you kind of talk about like how you built that agency? It became big and then why and how you scaled it down. Cause that's kind of a situation I feel like I'm in mean, is I feel like I want and know the value of focus and singular uh, point of concentration to like what I'm trying to improve in the area in my life. I want to be obsessed with, but it's like very difficult to, remove the layers and like remove the complications to free up space for that thing.
0: For context, so I quit my job in advertising when I was 26 and I was living in a small studio apartment, North side of Chicago. Like my bedroom was my closet, was my desk, was my kitchen, you know, all one foot next to each other. My goal when I quit my job was just, I just want to make enough to pay my rent and, and focus on writing and I wasn't making a lot, like my expectations were very low. And that's when I fell into ghostwriting and I started finding that it was very lucrative and I was very good at it. And I kept getting more and more opportunity. So I hit up one of my best friends and show him what's happening and what I'm charging per article. And he's like, we should turn this into a company. So between that moment and 18 months later, I mean, we went from me and him on his couch in his apartment in Atlanta brainstorming, okay, you be the editor, I'll be the writer, and we'll come up with this process to we had 20 full-time employees with benefits and 60, 70, 80 clients around the world doing 2 million bucks in revenue, you know, and that That happened a little over a year. I mean, that was very quick. That was, we were hiring two or three new full-time employees every month, month after month for months on end. So it was a really, I mean, it was an amazing experience, but it was also really overwhelming because, I mean, you go from quitting your job to like, now I'm 26, 27 years old and I'm employing 20 people and I got to figure out how to, what I'm doing here. And, you know, and then I moved out to LA and super high speed. Then I started connecting with all the entrepreneurs and investors and everybody out here. And so it was like a crash course and it was amazing, but it also made me realize like I wasn't a writer anymore. I was a startup founder and I was on a very different path. And all of a sudden I wasn't thinking about writing. I was thinking about products and I wasn't thinking about my craft. I was thinking about fundraising and I was thinking about, you know, like, where do I want to take this company? and for a time that was a really exciting thing but you know i've told the story before but me and my girlfriend went to mexico we go drive to the middle of nowhere i find myself in this lagoon just lay- laying in this in the water it's warm as a bath and i just realized like, i'm really unhappy i i'm not doing the thing that i love anymore now i'm managing people and i'm talking to investors and this is my life and it just That just wasn't what made me happy. So I came back from the trip, talked with my co-founder, and was like, "I'm I'm done. We've been doing this for two two and a half years. I learned a lot. This was an amazing journey, but let's scale it back. I want to I want to get back to being a writer. So and that process took a year. You know, we let everybody go and fired sixty clients, and you know it was I was a hard pivot and that was a difficult thing to do. But you start to realize like, this is your life. You know, so you only get so much time. So how, how do you want to spend your time? And then now, a year, year and a half later, you know, choosing that is what allowed me to write this book and start building this ship 30 for 30 writing challenge community and start getting back to all of the other things that really make me happy.
2: That's a great story. I read one of your most popular articles, and you mentioned it a couple of times in the book, is the seven things successful people tell themselves every single day. And one of the last thing on that list is never forget why you started. And that kind of sounds like Part of it, But I actually wanted to ask you a very specific question about that exact story. Uh, it's been in my head for two weeks since I listened to your episode with Danny Miranda. And it's kind of a tactical, goofy question, but why haven't you gone back to that lagoon? If it's like the, you tell the story on Danny's show that it, like it's mystified, everyone goes there and has a major life realization, I would go like once every month. You know what I mean?
0: Bro, that A, that's a terrific point. I mean, I feel like the obvious answer is we've been in a pandemic and I haven't left my apartment for a year and a half, but... That's a terrific point. I mean, the, the part of the story that I didn't share, maybe I did on Danny's podcast. I don't remember, but I really didn't want to go, you know, like my girlfriend had just gotten laid off and she had gotten a small severance package and she was like, I just want to travel. Like, I just, I just want to go do stuff. And we were at the height of what we were doing. And I was working 10, 12 hours a day, and we were trying to figure out this new product we wanted to build. And I was trying to fundraise and getting soft commits from investors. And I was, I mean, just like peak entrepreneurship. And the idea of going to Mexico and relaxing, I was like, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go, you know? And then it's not until we got there that I realized, well, this was exactly what I needed. And also like, why am I doing all of this? Like, this isn't even really making me happy. So it raises an interesting question of like, how do you learn to give yourself things that you might not want in the moment, but you need in order to really keep you accountable and on track of like, is this actually what I want? Or am I just pursuing being a startup founder? Because that's what society tells me is amazing. You know, I was a I was super addicted to the concept of I'm gonna build a high growth startup and I'm gonna have this amazing exit and I'm gonna have this windfall of cash and then my whole life's gonna be different. And it's not until you get on the path that you realize A, that's way harder than people make it out to seem like, and B, it costs a significant amount in order to get there. So if you don't love the journey, then it's just a means to an end. And if it's a means to an end, then like what are you doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more, but what makes you happy now? Like if you realize that you weren't happy, then like, what is it now that makes you happy?
0: Well, for one, the big, a big lesson for me was realizing that like we had an amazing team. Like I loved the team that we had built, but I really don't like managing people. And that's, and I learned that I didn't know that going into it. So what makes me happy now is that when I wake up in the morning, I I, I don't feel like, It's my responsibility to tell all these people what to do or to tell the layer of management to tell the people what to do. You know, like I'm accountable for myself. And if I want to take the rest of the day off and go to the beach, I can, you know, like, and some people don't want that. Some people don't want the lifestyle business. They just want to build a high growth company and whatever it takes. But I learned that I wanted more than that or I wanted something different than that. And then the second thing was, I just, I really love writing and playing with words. Like it's a puzzle to me. I love learning about it. I love practicing it. I love pushing boundaries with it. I love creating new styles. I love teaching other people about it. That's my world. So even though we had a ghostwriting agency, I was, I got to the point where I was really detached from all of that, you know, and you have to, in order to grow, you have to put people in place where that's their responsibility. And so then your responsibility as the leader starts becoming a lot more about people and management and finances and growth and all the things that have honestly nothing to do with writing anymore.
1: And then you mentioned Ship 30 earlier, and we actually interviewed Dickie uh, a couple of weeks back or released a couple of weeks back. But how did you get roped into to Ship 30? What's the story behind that? Maybe roped ends the wrong. I know it's it's a good thing. I roped myself thing. in. I voluntarily right, right.
0: roped myself. Actually, Craig Clemens, who we referenced, randomly connected Dickie and I in an email. I had never met him. I hadn't
2: even come across Man, This Craig guy
1: is Twitter. just all over the place. It's crazy. I, I was talking I to him. I convinced
2: couple- he's like the mastermind behind the whole universe. That's like another he- Behind theory. the whole
1: internet. <laughs> okay, well, yeah,
2: I think, of- yeah.
0: Craig knows everyone, so yeah. that's part of it. But like I told him this a few <laughs> weeks ago because I told him what we were doing and it was how it was going and everything. And he was like, didn't I connect you with him? And I was like, yeah, man, you randomly just connected us v- via email. And the best part was the email literally said, I I, can, I have it somewhere. It's like, I don't know why you guys need to chat. I'm just connecting you. And that was, that was all it was. It was like the message from the universe. And I was like, okay, I trust it what I told Craig that he was laughing so hard. We just, we talked, we jammed, we both really got along. And then in January, I tried ship 30 for myself. And the moment I finished that first essay, I texted Dickie and I was like, I'm all in, I'm doing this all year. I want to, I want to help you build this. I think we can do a live cohort on top of this. Like Because what I noticed was the moment that I finished that essay, the writing was interesting because it was a different template. You know, tweets are 280 characters. Articles are like 800 to a thousand words. Atomic essay is like right in the middle. And it's kind of this different format that doesn't really exist. And the moment I finished it and I hit export and I saw the image of the atomic essay, I felt accomplished. And I've been doing this for years. So I imagined what does a new writer feel? If you just finished your first atomic essay, if you feel this feeling that I feel, then you feel really accomplished. And for a beginner writer or even someone who's still on the path, that is a powerful feeling. It's motivating. And so feeling that I, it's like, you know, it's kind of like being, intro- it's like being introduced to a new startup before anybody else. And you're like, that is amazing. Like I know that that's going to crush it. So I got really excited about it. We've just been building it together. We have a lot of other plans of things we want to add on top of it, but I give him all the credit. I mean, he he's created an amazing product. He's run an incredible community. Kid, he's just he's an animal.
1: He's a beast for sure. We're looking for that minority stake in the Tampa NBA team, Dickie. We all he's, want
0: in. Bro, I'm calling it now. I would push so many chips into the center of the table saying Dickie's gonna be just incredibly, incredibly successful in his lifetime. So the fact that we're getting to collaborate and build this together to me is just, it's an amazing opportunity.
2: Well, that is, that is awesome. I I'm thirding the putting my chips on towards the Tampa NBA team, <laughs> but a question I have for you, it's kind of like, you know, some listeners will understand this and some won't. So I'm just going to preface that, but a lot of your writing, your writing advice about writing <laughs> kind of conflicts with a lot of other people's advice about blogging and having your own website and specifically, you know, when you and Dickie have been talking about live cohorts for writing, Kyle and I, who are active on Twitter, immediately start thinking about kind of the other school of thought and like the the David Perel Rite of Passage universe. So a question I have for you, uh, a big kind of point you make is the idea of category creation. And I was curious if they, this is Kyle's question, so I'm definitely stealing his question. So I'll send him a list of mine and we can share it. But is what is the difference between creating a personal monopoly and category creation and being like a category pirate? So that's like very detailed. That's like, I don't know someone, there's a little bit of context here, but what's the difference between those two ideas?
0: I don't want to speak for Dave Perel or what he's created because I don't think I'm equipped to, but the big difference, or let's, let's start with this. What is category creation? Category creation is the awareness of which levers you can push and pull to achieve not just like fleeting differentiation but but true true like what does it actually mean to be differentiated the problem that i have with a lot of i mean general branding marketing whatever advice is that it all kind of sits in the land of authenticity you just need to be authentic and then that's how you're going to be different the problem is no one actually knows what that word means and it doesn't help anyone understand how to actually create a different category for themselves. The part of building a a, a personal monopoly, first of all, the, the phrasing and the framing of that is incredible. So I give Dave a ton of credit for that because it's very easy for people to understand what that means with that language. That's really well done. But there's a lot more that you can do in order to not just create a category, but then successfully defend your category. Because if you are successful in creating a category, the obvious thing that most other people do is they pile in and they go, Oh, well, I want to be part of this too. So then it's not just how do you create it, but then how do you successfully defend the kingdom that you are building? Category Pirates for context is, you know, I'm like the the young Jedi of the trio here because the other two guys are Christopher Lockhead, who's been doing this. A very long time, you know, three times .com era, publicly traded companies. Just, you know, has an incredible podcast called Lockhead on Marketing. Wrote two books on category creation called Play Bigger and Niche Down. And then Eddie Yoon, who wrote a book called Super Consumers, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 growth consultant. I mean, these guys have been doing it for forever. And the principles that I've learned from them are a lot more about it's not just like how do you create a different message or a different tagline or a different you know whatever it's a true category creation it comes down to both product innovation business model innovation and then this third piece of if you have a data flywheel that allows you to anticipate where the category is going that is how you maintain your leadership position so i would say like personal monopoly is like category creation light, you know, it's like, I I'm super beginner and I kind of want to know like how to think about this. And this is a nice, easy place to start. But like, if you really want to understand true category design and understand what levers can you push and pull to build a differentiated product, what levers can you push and pull to create a differentiated business model? And then how does the data flywheel impact the decisions you make to anticipate where the category is going and you want all the research about like how that actually happens and proof and the pudding and all of that, like that is category pirates.
2: Yeah. I think that's an awesome distinction between the two. And we didn't bring them up to like incite a debate. We were genuinely like trying to, we yeah, what's agree- the difference? Yeah, exactly. It was a matter of curiosity that your idea is awesome. His idea is awesome. Are they the same thing? And we weren't totally sure. So thanks for, for breaking that down. And I kind of agree with you with kind of spotting opportunity in ship 30, the way you did Because what Dickie kind of did early on with that first like beta cohort is he just created just enough of a product to get people's attention. And then people from there, right? He, the flywheel of just people saying, you should add this, you should add this, you should add this, you should add this. Then all he had to do was just like do what people told him and people were telling him what he wanted. And that's kind of created a really powerful system. So on the scale of business and writing.
0: Yeah. Let's just, as an example, let's break down why ship 30 for 30 is its own category. So for one differentiated product being a lot of people or writing groups or whatever. And this is also, this is why I bought into it because this is something I preach all the time. A lot of those writing groups are private, you know, like, Hey, you come and you write in private and you write on your own. And like, it's about that ship 30 is radically different. It's we're going to practice in public and we're going to do that in front of everybody else. And it is a very polarizing, different approach. And then the product itself looks different. It's not your average medium article. It's not your average blog post. These are atomic essays. This is using languaging to describe a new and differentiated product that did not exist before. Okay, great. Then the business model, differentiated business model. I think other people charge, you know, like kind of similarly per access to the community or, or whatever. In this case, it's like, it's very simple. You're going to pay a hundred bucks you're gonna get access to all of the materials here. It's essentially like getting access to a full online course or live cohort where most people would charge a couple hundred bucks, thousands of dollars, whatever. You're getting access to a massive amount of information for really low. So comparatively, it's priced very differently than what your quote unquote, what you would compare it to. So that, that is a huge powerful lever. And then the data flywheel is every person that writes is publishing on Twitter who is telling other people about Ship 30 because of the nature of the way that they're publishing. So now the data flywheel is creating attention for the thing in the first place. So with those things all together, like how do you catch something like that? That's moving so quickly. It's very hard then to go. Well, I'm going to create something similar. Like you're, you're not going to be able to catch that. It's the same reason why you know Netflix is still the streaming category king. Everyone else can come out with Paramount Plus and Disney Plus and whatever, and they'll have their share of the market. But like Netflix owns it because their data flywheel is eight years ahead of everybody else's.
1: That is a really interesting concept, the data flywheel. I, I'm sure that we'll come back to that. That's one of those things that Lewis and I. will be talking about in future episodes, but I'd like to formally commit. I'm going to do it in March, the trip 30. Let's go. I'll I'll pay for it tonight and, and send you guys a receipt as a way to stay accountable to it. There we go. Earlier today, I asked a just out of left field question and it went really well. And I want to do that here. What are your thoughts on death? What do you think about mortality and just the fact that we're all going to die and how do you deal with that?
0: man so i used to be i was a huge tupac head in high school and college and i was just and he wrote about death all the time and i was super into poetry and rap and i just yeah i i spent a lot of time thinking about that for a very long time i've i've been obsessed with the idea of legacy you know what are you leaving behind and and how do you build this amazing sculpture out of all your life's work that represents you after you pass and I'll be honest, in the past few years, I think it was building a company. Building a company is the most humbling thing in the entire world. It's like being punched repeatedly in the face every single day, as long as the company is alive. And what it makes you realize is so many of the things that you worried about or that you spent all this time thinking, like, I just stopped worrying about them for some reason, probably because I was so consumed with what I was building. And- in the past couple of years, I've gotten to a place where I kind of realized that we're all just building sandcastles. I forget who's who said that. That's someone else's quote, not mine. But like we could make the most amazing sandcastle ever. But at the end of the day, like the wind's gonna come through and the water's gonna wash it away and it's just gonna go back to being sand. And I used to put all this pressure on myself that like I needed to build this perfect mosaic to represent my life and my life's work and you know, I have a lot of people don't know this, but I have very high aspirations for myself as an artist. You know, like what I'm working on now is really cool, but I make decisions 50 years out. Like I, I want to be one of the great writers of this generation. So I put a lot of pressure on myself to achieve that goal. But as as you think about the sandcastle thing, it's like, but who really cares? And And even if that is true, that's only going to be true for like a couple decades, or a couple millennia, or a couple right, whatever max,
1: I mean, a couple millennia.
0: Right, and then like, what happens if if a meteor hits Earth and Earth is no more? Then like, no one's ever going to know, and so who cares? You know. So I don't know. I've definitely I've gotten to this point where I'm I'm much more like you know what, there's not a lot to worry about. Just build what you want to build now. Be in the moment, flow with it, have fun. It's it's. That's really all that matters. And wherever the chips land, they land.
2: Kyle and I have been doing a lot of experimenting on the pod lately and we're uh, two for two on that one. So thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I love it. I haven't thought about that in a while, but you know what? Great question.
2: Yeah, if I you know, put out some guide on the internet to like how to structure a podcast interview, it's like five five questions each to show that you've done your research and then just throw something out of nowhere. That's <laughs> going to be the formula.
0: Go straight to death. And then you know what? You can get even more mileage out of it. Ask that question to every guest that you feel comfortable asking it to for the next two years, and then compile all the answers into a book called How to Deal with Death. And then now you've just curated a ton of really interesting perspectives.
2: So that actually jogs my memory for a very specific, less high level question. We did something very similar from August or September to December. We did a summit where we asked, 30 podcast hosts, the same five questions about how they've grown and marketed their shows. Like what would they do with a thousand dollar ad budget? What would they do differently if they could start over? Like five questions on that nature. And it kind of flopped in terms of like release and delivery and like attention it got for like the amount of effort we put in. So a question I have for you, kind of in the scheme of like recognizing that I thought that was gonna be really valuable is one, like about you repurposing content and like what happens there. Because I think you have some opinions on that that a lot of people don't realize is possible in terms of like republishing things more than once. And also like what to do with an asset you put a lot of time into making for the internet that you still think has value that it hasn't fully been appreciated.
0: Boy, there's so many things to unpack in what you just said. So (laughs) so for (laughs) one, I mean, I would make the argument that maybe... It's a bit of a chicken before the egg predicament, but, but maybe that didn't get the attention that you thought it deserved also because you guys are still figuring out what topics work best for you. So your own audience is still kind of figuring that out as well. You know, so it's, it'd be different if you were like, we've been drilling home these topics for three years. We know people are interested in this. We created this high value asset and it flopped. Like that's a very different data point than we're throwing a lot at the wall and this one didn't work and we don't really know why, you know? So just worth keeping in mind. Second is the reality. And I keep this in mind all the time for myself is like, you honestly never truly know, like the biggest thing, you never know what's going to work and what's not. The biggest issue that I had with the, with writing this book, the art and business of online writing was like, it is jam packed full of frameworks. And very actionable things that people can do, but at the same time, you have to you have to be aware of the element of luck that is in everything. And for me, some of, like I can hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, I can reverse engineer and come up with reasons as to why I think certain things that I did worked well, but I can use that exact same framework again, and it'll flop. You know, and some of my most viral pieces. I published actively thinking to myself, eh, this isn't my best work. A lot of, no, no one's going to read this. And then it becomes my most read piece of all time. Like that has happened to me so many times. So I think part of it is just realizing that the long-term is more important than any one asset, you know, like you, you really don't know. So just focus on the long-term. And then if something doesn't get the attention you feel like it deserves, try it a couple different ways. And if you're getting signal that no one's really paying attention, well then ditch it and move on. And if you're getting signal that there is something there, you just need to lean into it more than explore it more. A great example, by the way, is even with specific articles, like I really don't, especially in the game of online writing, like you gain so much through volume that going back and editing is really not worth your time unless it's a super high value asset, so instead of feeling like, oh, I need to go back and edit, I need to go back and edit, rewrite it as a different version, rewrite it and reswizzle it. You know, I've written the same articles like a hundred times, but I say something different every time, or I approach it differently every time, or I format it differently every time. And so the reader never really knows. The reader's just like, oh, cool, this is you're driving home that same point again, but it's set in a different way. This is interesting. Cool. And for me, it just makes me more and more and more aware of the same topics that I keep covering. So it ultimately makes me a better writer and it gives me two assets instead of one. So yeah, I would just repetition volume is the key.
1: Yeah. I like that. And something you said there reminded me of something that I bring up a lot on here. And it's like, If Bill Gates was to go back to 18 year old Bill Gates and give him a book about how to be Bill Gates, like how to become 60 year old Bill Gates with billions of dollars and started Microsoft, the 18 year old Bill Gates would like not become 60 year old Bill Gates because he has this rule book to follow and it's just not the way that the world works and looking for advice or or reasons why these different things didn't work or, or didn't pop off. It's like the energy that we use to think about that is probably better served just making something new or like you're saying, rebranding it, repurposing it, republishing it. To kind of talk a little bit more about, you know, you think about everything on a 50-year timeline. That's a big statement, I think. 50 years is so long. I I don't know exactly how old you are, but you know, in the last decade, you've lived five different lives. What do you want to accomplish in the next 50 years other than being one of this generation's best or biggest or most impactful writers.
2: Yeah, I was going to add on to that how you define being like a generationally impactful writer as well.
1: Well, the,
0: the truth of that, first of all, I just turned 30. So I think that's that's also thrown me into a different gear. You know, I'm out of my 20s now. So now it's like, okay, when we get really got to get to work now, you know, the artist or the or the creator, I don't think really gets to pick I think they just create things and then the market and society decides how that person is seen in the value of their work. So I don't know that I have so much control over the outcome as much as I do control over what I bring to the process. What I mean by making decisions with a 50 year timeline, like for example, I almost didn't write the book, The Art and Business of Online Writing, because the first thing that I think of is, is that book going to be relevant 50 years from now? And when I wrote it, I intentionally phrased things in a way where I said, hey, I don't want to put so much emphasis on the tactics that are relevant right now. I want to make this more about thinking and strategies that are going to be timeless. I think more of the focus is around not not necessarily like, what do I want to accomplish? As much as it is, how can I create things that are going to survive longer than just the moment or the year? Like There's a reason why I don't write books or create a lot of assets that are like, hey, here's this growth hack that works in 2021 you know because that has a very short shelf life and that's not a great time investment for me whereas other decisions and investing that same amount of time in something that has a much longer shelf life then you start experiencing compounding rewards over time because they're relevant longer
2: yeah i think you framed that in a really interesting way and i think that is something Kyle and i have tried to do as well like we've tried to do as much as we possibly can talk as little about covid as possible right on every episode because it's like five years from now, this conversation with you know Nick Cole, top writer, and Cora is something I'm gonna want to send to someone who like is interested in this topic. And if the first twenty minutes were like, "Oh, what's the pandemic like in Los Angeles?" "Oh, in Tuscaloosa, the pandemic is like this," <laughs> right. they're gonna be like, "What? What? No! Like this is useless." So applying that to everything you do uh, makes everything you do much more worthwhile. Unless you're like a newscaster, but we're not. Yeah, so. I have a question for you. It kind of ties back to where we started the conversation, but it's a little different angle to it. How have you? S- you've kind of have established that you just have this really successful track record with like obsessively exceeding in specific areas of focus. But it also seems like, you know, from just talking to you in general, and maybe spending some time looking at your Instagram and research for this as well, like you have a pretty normal life, it looks like you've been in a serious relationship for a long time, like you've not let obsession prevent you from like, developing like a proper life as well. What's kind of been your approach to balancing being so, so, so all in on whatever it is at the time, but also like properly going through life milestone events and those kinds of things.
0: I mean, you're making me feel normal, but I think if you asked people close to me in my life, I actually think a bunch of them would say, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe mentally and emotionally I've found ways to still be cohesive and whole and, and things like that. But if you asked my closest friends and things, I mean, I I make a lot of life decisions around I want to be the best and I And I want to make time for what I do, you know, so like, I mean, the, the pandemic is a bit different, but for example, like those four years after I graduated from college, the story I tell all the time is I didn't allow myself to have internet for four years in my apartment because I knew if i worked a full day and came home went to the gym came home i'd be tired and i would just want to watch youtube videos and go to bed and i really wanted to be a writer and i really wanted to write my first book i deprived myself of internet in my apartment for 4 years so that every night when i came home the only thing that i could do in my studio apartment was write and work on my book that's how i wrote my first book i don't know it's it's a weird balance cuz i can also i can think about a lot of moments in time where like i have let people down or i have made decisions where i distanced myself from from people or other friends or whatever because what i was working on meant more to me you know that's a really hard thing it's a very hard that's hard to know where to draw the line with that but i've also gotten really into meditation reading going to the gym obviously like a, a lot of the things i get interested in have have byproducts of personal development and taking care of yourself and things so i'm sure that's a natural a natural element i don't know i guess my answer is like yes that's true but asterisk you know, I even look at my life right now. I've been up since 5 30 this morning. And aside from like making myself lunch, I've essentially been writing or working on my craft. Or I did another office hours with another group two hours ago, or this podcast. I've been going. It's been like 10 straight hours. And I'm like, let's go. Like, I'm still going, you know? And I just, and it's because I love it. It's not because I feel like I need to. It's because this is how I want to spend my time and because I want to be great at what I do.
2: Well, I really admire and appreciate the intensity. And I think it's one of my favorite parts of, of doing the podcast is it's so difficult to find in the real world the, this is actually, I think, one of your more recent atomic essays, the two types of friends, but it's so difficult in the real world to expose yourself to the type of people who are just like that hardcore. Like I am pursuing greatness and that is like, truly something i'm going to place at a higher value than like a relationship that in this scheme of th- looking 3 years out like how much will it matter and i think that for me and most people that their main source of information and influence is their immediate circle and then like the depictions of society in the media like you only hear someone have that opinion and express that thought if they're like lebron james or like michael phelps and you're like sure michael phelps can obviously like not have friends because he's going to be he's committed to excellence or lebron james is like willing to make sacrifices because he's going to be lebron james but for me i think it's so admirable to and just valuable and like the most useful thing about this podcast is letting someone like yourself influence me and like hearing someone more relatable than lebron james and michael phelps from like society's perspective like talk about that in a beneficial, positive way. So I just appreciate that a lot.
0: Totally. I mean, in the in the simplest way, how do you think all those people got there? You know, like at a certain point, Michael Phelps was just some dude who swam. And that that I think is what's interesting is you have to adopt the mindset long before society ever tells you and everyone else that that's who you are. So, yeah, I mean, I just, hearing you say that, I think back to all the times when I lived in Chicago, you know, and people were like, come on, it's just one one day just come hang out at the bar and do nothing you know and i, I was just laugh at them i'm like no i know what i'm doing and why i'm doing it this is what matters to me and i was just having this conversation with someone else like in the context of both of you the internet has like pfft. like i was early on the internet for my generation but for your age the speed of the internet is just it's incredible like the fact that you have the ability to get access to those types of people whenever you want on a zoom call you know like that's 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 amazing it's not to be taken for granted so i one of the things that i find really cool is that younger and younger generations are realizing that they can tap into this and now it's like it's super common for an 18 year old to be like yeah i have a hundred thousand followers on TikTok, and i'm trying to figure out how to start my t-shirt company you know, like that, that's not a rare thing anymore. That like, that's common. So I think it's cool that there's so many more opportunities to be surrounded by relatable people where you can feed off of them. And, you know, I've been saying this since I was 17, but I have more internet friends than I have real life friends,
2: you know? Absolutely. I completely agree kind of with the energy the point is too and hopefully in the the post-pandemic world that internet friends become real life friends when geography and travel are less restricted i'm sure that's happened for you many times as well i think your sandcastles thing came from naval and this might be another kind of navalism the internet he has this line in the book that stops saying why and start saying wow and just what is possible like the fact that you know we've done 55 of these podcasts like very similar to this but like it still can continue to amaze you that fact that like this is even possible. And the things that are going to become possible because of this, just, you know, three people in a completely different place, publishing a conversation that anyone can play at any time ever. Like when you actually abstract and think about like what exactly is happening and just something as now as trivial as recording a remote podcast, which like is millions of happening every single day. It's truly incredible. One thing Kyle and I frequently tell ourselves is it's going to take us a long time to fully looking back on this period of our lives when we were doing this, realize just how crazy and cool it was that we were doing this. And like, it was possible that we could just send a DM, ask Dickie for an introduction, two weeks later, be on the phone with you publish it and re-listen to it anytime we want to. So it's just truly incredible when you think about all the details in abstract terms.
0: Yeah. And just riffing on that, you know, so many people hate on like, oh, my beginning stuff isn't going to be that good. But the reality is the more time goes on and the more you stick with it, the cooler your beginning stuff gets. If you guys go and do a thousand of these, these early episodes are going to be like gems you know, and you're going to look back and you're going to see the growth. And that's going to be the coolest thing ever for you. And it's going to be the coolest thing ever for the next person who wants to start a podcast and is worried. And is like, wait, let me see proof that this is actually how it goes. That's why too, so much of the emphasis that I place on in the context of writing is like, just build your library because the more time goes on the context of your earlier stuff changes. And all of a sudden then your early stuff goes from being rough to being like early signals of greatness. And it it's amazing.
2: Yeah. And then on the com- the complete flip side, what's super cool about being the interviewer, not the guest on like a show like this is, you know, I think we were the first podcast Dicky did about Ship 30. So if you know, you and Dickie just spend the next however long, just turning that into like the thing that's like the writer, internet writer, like this humongously massive influential organization. Like we can be like, yeah, the f- first interview ever about that thing was this. And there's awesome. 50, 50 of those possible things that that could be true about. Yep. The final question we've been asking a couple episodes in a row now is kind of in case we failed in our jobs as the interviewers, and there's one really important piece of success advice you would want to give someone in our situation, our audiences, largely reflections of ourselves, ambitious college students or people, you know, plus or minus a couple of years. You've had a very, you told it in this podcast and many other places, a very successful kind of post-college life. Do you have a specific piece of advice that you would attribute you being where you are now to having followed that wasn't really brought up on this podcast?
0: Well, the one that that comes to mind is I remember in my early 20s, I put so much emphasis on what was I going to do? I felt like I, in, within myself, I felt like I needed to come up with this answer. And that's why I have so much respect for what you guys are doing. Or when I see other people that are starting out and they go, I'm going to go start a podcast and interview a bunch of people, or I'm going to start a newsletter and curate insights from a bunch of people. I I really feel like in the beginning, you're so much better off being in the business of learning and soaking up knowledge because when you're first starting out, you don't even know what you don't know. Like You don't know what roads are possible, so how can you even consider them? I feel like I wasted a lot of time early on feeling like I needed to come up with the answer when the, in, in reality, when you surround yourself with tons and tons of people and really smart people, people that are domain experts that have gone down their rabbit hole and they're way further along Than you are, they let you sit on their shoulders. You know, they give you insight into, well, if I go down this path, here's what I can expect. And if I go down this path, here's what I can expect. And if you spend a year or two or three doing nothing but that, forget the side hustle, forget trying to monetize and whatever, make your first thousand bucks on the internet. Like All of that is great, but the answers that you will come to by surrounding yourself with those types of people, the quality of those answers is going to be dramatically higher if you just remove the friction and focus on learning and soaking up knowledge from other people. I'm noticing it as a huge trend, if we want to call it that, is like People that are starting out, they go. I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to go interview a bunch of people. Danny Miranda is a great example of this. It is a accelerant for learning all the things that you don't know you don't know, which gives you more awareness to make better decisions for your own life.
1: We're really glad that you're one of those people for us, uh, and we're really grateful that you came on here and and spent an hour of your time with us. If our audience wants to find you, where should we send them to find your work and to learn more about you?
0: Twitter is my go to right now. So. Twitter, Nicholas Cole, 77 website is all the basic stuff, Nicholas Cole.com, but super engaged on Twitter. If you send me an email, I'll respond. If you tweet me, I'll respond. You know, I love, I love connecting and chatting with new people. So thanks for having me guys. This was, this was awesome. And you asked some really great questions, including the death one. I liked
1: it. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And that wraps up our interview with Nick Cole. It was a really cool conversation. I've got a few takeaways. The first of which is practice. Like if you want to be obsessed with something, you just have to do it every day for a long time. He played World of, Craft, World of Warcraft every day for years. He went to the gym and worked out every day for years. He has written every day probably for 10 years and now he's writing 10,000 words a day and is he's it's just you can't do something that much and not get better at it. And that's a really good reminder for me because like You know, I like to read articles about things and like it's sort of like that that meme that's on Twitter recently. It's like the right side and the left side of the bell curve is just make things and the middle is like plan, read, execute good habits, dot, dot, dot. And then the second thing is when he went to that lagoon in Mexico and had this big realization like that would not have happened had he stayed in L.A. and continued to work on this ghostwriting agency like he was very reluctant and resistant to go to Mexico, this girlfriend, even though that that's what she wanted to do. And if he hadn't have done that, he might still be working on something that ultimately wouldn't have made him happy, which I think is a really powerful lesson to like, make sure that you're getting out of where you're, where you're at. Like Lewis and I were going to orange beach today. So that'll be an incredible change in environment and energy. And we'll be able to, to learn some things. Otherwise we wouldn't have. And the third thing is that you know cole's got really big goals he, he talked about how what he wants to do are 50 year he's thinking 50 years out with his art and like th- that's just something that most people aren't doing so it's really amazing to have somebody who's willing to say like i want to be a generationally like generate you know like hemingway or something like that like and uh I believe that he can do it. Like he's writing 10,000 words a day and nobody else that I know is doing that. It was just really cool to have a conversation with somebody who like is a rocket ship, just like the rest of our conversations on here and the rest of our podcast is just really, really cool to get these people so early. I mean, obviously it's been 10 years for him of, of hard work, but that will only continue to compound on itself. And I know that in the future, people are gonna be like, you talk to him? And we'll be like, yeah, which is just an amazing leverage point in this podcast is i'm grateful for it
2: a uh, couple of mine here the first one is about leveling up and kind of how he gamified life so this is a different interpretation of your first takeaway about practice when you see it as a video game you develop proper expectations about how you should progress this is something he talks a lot about in his book and a couple other podcasts i listened to of him in research for this one but when he works with these executives in his ghostwriting agency, because they're so successful in business or their career or something else, they assume they should be good at writing. Because I've had success elsewhere, I should be successful everywhere. And that's just not how it works. They are successful at business, but they're at level zero in terms of writing online and personal branding and those kinds of things. And for whatever reason, Nick or Cole realized this early in life, thought like, okay, he hurt himself playing hockey, so he's going to get into video games. Just because he was good at hockey, it doesn't mean he's going to be good at video games. He's A novice, he's not afraid to be the worst in the room. And then he follows the same repeatable formula of a video game. Anything you want to do, you start out at level zero. You talk to some people at level one, level two. They bring you up to level one, level two with them over time. And then you talk to some people at level three, level four, level five. And they give you the advice. You follow what you practice, like Kyle said. And that's how you send through the ranks. And such a healthy way to discard your ego and assume that you're going to suck at anything new. Because most of the reason that most of us quit things is we expect to be better than we should be based on how much time we've put in, get discouraged and quit. Uh, and that's such a healthy approach to taking on new things and progressing through them. So I really appreciate uh, him drilling that framework into us and having it repeated so many times in the research process for this. Uh, the second one is that intrinsic motivation dominates. So this is something I can relate to from the opposite extrinsic motivation doesn't really work that well if you're trying to complete a college degree and you're in your last semester you got senioritis that's a real thing don't tell me it's not and you don't really know why you're doing it except to finish your motivation is like you know you need every external stimulant possible just to sit down and study for like eight minutes but then you do something that is aligned with like you're not like your passion because that's kind of whatever just aligned with your intuition you want to be doing it and you'll work for like hours and hours and hours and that's how as kyle said he writes 10,000 words a day and he's crushing it. And though he's been busting ass for 10 years, he's going to bust ass for another 50 because he loves what he's doing. So intrinsic motivation dominates people that aren't working off of intrinsic motivation. And that's how he's going to keep this level of output up. Uh, Third one, I agree with you as well about the 50 year thinking. Uh, The way I kind of characterized it is it's so rare to see someone committed openly publicly to achieving greatness outside of like basketball or swimming. Now, we know everyone who is like a kid, they're like, oh, I'm going to be in the NBA one day. But very few people take their intellectual or their business pursuits as seriously, but they should if they want to achieve greatness. And I think that almost, you know, in a way made me feel like I should feel permission to kind of say the same thing. Because like, I do feel the same way. Like I'm maybe less decisive about like which specific area of business or craft I'm going to become the best in the world at. But like, that's the ambition. Like whatever it is I'm doing, I want to be the best in the world at it. So that's just an awesome way he he characterized that. That's what we took away from this conversation. I hope that if you were listening the whole time and enjoyed it, you were taking some notes yourself potentially to help remind yourself of the ideas that impacted you. If you're on Twitter, if you're on social media, maybe make a short post somewhere talking about what you learned from the conversation. Reach out to us, reach out to Nick, say, hey, we'd love to hear from you. Join the conversation with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, we have four episodes that we released in the past four weeks. That are quite similar to it i wrote down the name so i'm not cheating tal Gurr, episode 54 we talk about how he achieved 100 ambitious life goals in 10 years that conversation was wild robbie crabtree 55 i realized i skipped one here he talks about how he created a An online course within about six months of being a creator on the internet has 11,000 Twitter followers. His course got acquired by On Deck. That was a wild story. Dickie, who is the co-creator or the creator of Ship30, now like kind of the co-founder with Nick, with Cole. So that was an awesome episode. And then also if you're interested in being more hydrated, episode 51 with John Sherwin. These are all some baller episodes. You got to check those out if you like this one. If you appreciate the show, we'd appreciate if you left a review and we'll see you in a week with the next episode. Have a good one.